This is games in schools and libraries. The podcast about board, card and digital games and the ways in which they can find a place in schools or at the local library. Hosting provided by the Games for Educators website www.g4ed.com G'day and welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries. My name's Giles Pritchard. I'm a teacher at St George's Road, Shepparton, Australia. And I teach a Grade 3-4 classroom. And I use games in uh, the Games Club for our Games Days and uh, generally in the classroom for lots of other different things as well. You can find me in my, my blog, castlebymoonlight.blogspot.com, uh, or you can find me on Twitter as P. I'm Donald Dennis, and I'm a librarian at the Georgetown County Library System in Georgetown County, South Carolina, where I run games and technology outreach for the library, well, for all four library branches, and we teach people how to design games, we play games, we run tournaments... And, of course, we do all kinds of technology classes as well. So you can find me there. And all over the Internet, you can find me at On Board Games, where I run a podcast. And you can find me as On Board Games on Twitter. And, uh, well, that's all i got to say. So what's been happening at the library, Don? Well, it's been summer, uh, which means the kids come in as soon as the doors open. I show up, and I'm greeted by their cheerful faces. And they're like, can we play games? Can we play games? <laughs> and it's like... Well, you know that on Tuesday I have my iPad classes during the morning, so you can't play games where I can see you. You can go to the back computers and play over there, but you can't interrupt our class. And we've had you know new people show up from out of town and join us, and it's always fun seeing that breaking in period where you've got a group of folks who are there, and then there are other people who sort of come into this atmosphere, and they're not used to a library that has these kinds of services. And uh, so that's really been the big part of what we've doing. And I've, ha- I've hired in a, a new person because our previous employee has gone on to college. Oh, very good. So that's exactly what we're looking to do here. Excellent. So the games programs you're running or the games programs that the kids are getting involved with are predominantly console games? Uh, well, we do both. Uh, one of the libraries, it's primarily board games. And at the other library, it's primarily console games. And, of course, the favorite games that they come into play are the shooters, though, because... We've had some people want to try out some other games. All of a sudden, skating games have become very popular, and it's like, really? So we're going to play with Skate and the uh, what's the Tony Hawk games, and all of a sudden those have all come back off the shelf, and it's just weird to see the cyclic nature of which games are popular right now. Uh, excellent. What's been going on with you, Giles? Um, well, uh, aside from the normal run-of-the-mill classrooms, and we've been using, um, I've been using games occasionally in my um, literacy classes uh, with some of my groups. I've been using a couple of sentence-building games and, and other word games and whatnot. Um, but aside from that, we're also full swing with our games club this term. Um, I've talked about this before. It's the games club that we run in conjunction with the charity The Smith Family. And um, that has been fantastic, actually. The turnout has been really, really good. Um, We've got a really um, solid group of kids, regular kids, who are coming in. And um, just last Thursday, actually, 
we had uh, we, we run the clubs on a Thursday afternoon, and um, for those people following our Facebook page, you'd have got photo. You've seen some photos posted there from the games that that were being played, um, and I happened to participate in probably one of the best games of Ticket to Ride I've ever been involved with. It was just really a lot of fun. Um, you know, I've got a, a child in my my um, games club who is Asperger's and who has an obsession with trains um, of all manner. And so, any game with a train on the cover, he's you know absolutely loves it. And so, we've had a, a lot of fun trying Trans America and Trans Europa. But he's particularly fallen in love with Ticket to Ride. And so, every opportunity, he's sort of pulled this game out of the cupboards and and tried to rope people into playing. Um, and I've been involved with a couple of the games that they've played before. You know, I taught taught them the game obviously a good while ago. And and you know, I I stop in and make sure that the game is being played. And, good spirit and and by the rules um you know whenever i see it out but i sort of haven't sat down to play with them for a little while because i've been teaching other groups of kids games and whatnot but i've got to do that on thursday and you know when you first teach a game and ticket to ride is um a relatively easy game but there are layers of strategy that perhaps are a little um obscured for the kids playing, you know, kids coming cold into board games, um, it's not necessarily something, you know, the strategies and so forth that they see right away. And so the previous games that I've sort of seen have fallen into really the kids trying to collect all of the cards that they possibly can. Now, in Tickets to Ride, you're collecting coloured cards and then using those to buy um, train routes on the on the map and then placing your trains on them with the idea of connecting up different cities. And so, you know, I've seen kids collecting as many of the possible cards as they can without doing anything with them. Um, this game that I sat down to play, you know, their play style had really, really evolved, and it was obvious that these kids had really clicked with the game. Now, they're talking about blocking each other, and they're talking about strategies, and at one point, one of the kids said... Um, you know, oh, he got really frustrated after somebody else's turn. <laughs> oh, I don't have to stop collecting cards now and buy something. And it really messed with his, um, in his head, what he had planned out to do for the next couple of turns. So it was a real lot of fun to play. And it was just one of the best um, game experiences I've had for a good long while. So that was really thrilling to see how the kids had gone from, you know, simply getting the game off the shelf and sort of playing it but not really getting into it all the way through to this this stage they're at now where they're really you know they really understand how the game works and and it, it was just yeah, really good loved it absolutely and you know that that's one of the very exciting things about going out into public groups or, you know or semi-public as a school kind of is that you get to see the evolution of people who aren't you know, diehard gamers, and especially when you bring in younger players, just getting to see them, you know, oh, well, wait a minute, can I do this? Or, you know, wait a minute, you did that to me, and I have to figure out a way to respond to it. And that is just the exciting part of playing with people who maybe aren't already gamers, because I know that, that you can find it frustrating to, if you really understand games, to sit back and watch people who don't get them as they sort of stumble or stagger through the learning process mm. or the, don't you understand if you do this, then everybody's going to know what your, you know, what your goal is and they're going to, they're going to jump on you and keep you from getting it. But on the other hand, watching it when they start having this revelation process, it's just so exciting. 
One of the things that I've really loved is, is as I said before, one of the kids is is, um, diagnosed with Asperger's, and so he's got a very um, sort of one-track mind in, 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 in some regards, and so his... When when we first learned the game, you know, he would collect all of the cards that he needed for all of the roads that he needed to build and then just build them. Um, and then if something happened in between, somebody bought a road in between that he had planned out to buy, then he would get frustrated with the game and so on. And so it's been fantastic to see his evolution. He was the one that said, oh, now I'm going to have to stop buying cards and buy road and that shift of, of being able to to jump gears and stop doing one thing and start doing another thing was just it was brilliant yeah it was it was as I said a really great game because it was so obvious how much evolution had taken place in their whole attitude how they approached not just the game but every turn in the game you know they were really watching what each other were doing they were really engaged with the game the whole time they were smack talking and you know I'm going to buy this I can tell you're going over there I'm going to buy this and then don't you dare and you know all of this sort of stuff so it was just such a great game to be involved with and it particularly thrilling seeing you know where they had been with with how they'd engaged with the game to begin with to where they're at now you know after you know four or five games under the belt it's it's just brilliant yeah loved absolutely loved it well and, and that sort of brings us up is how how does if someone's got a i don't even know what you would call it uh asperger's if, they, if they've got this this problem how do you approach teaching a game to them in, in a way that's different than you would teach what you would consider a a standard child well i don't, I don't know how to say this without being offensive to somebody so no, I, it's it. You know, it's difficult, I guess, to to discuss in the in that sense without feeling like, in some senses, you're being politically incorrect. But um, certainly, you know, in in my experience, kids um, with Asperger's Asperger's is a form of autism um, tend to be uh, mathematical, analytical. Um, at least a lot of the kids that I've, I've dealt with have had that bent. Um, they can be low functioning. They can be very high functioning. Um, they tend not to be able to read the social aspect of um, human interaction and so they struggle with with nuance and with implication and with with things like tone of voice and body language um, and they also are very tied to processes and to methodology and to routine and so the way I find, and I've taught quite a few kids um, over the years with, with varying forms of uh, autism, particularly kids with Asperger's, and I've found that, that because um, games, games I find are really valuable tools because they are a social activity that is governed by a set of rules and guidelines and so there's a structure there that they can cling to that that provides a system that um, dictates how the passage of play is going to go it's not unstructured it's not things unexpected don't just happen there's a set of rules there and so if everybody's operating within the rules but of course then there's also because it's a it's a you know you're sitting around the table with the people you're playing with it is obviously also then a social activity and so i find it it's it provides a really neat structure for what can be a really um you know confrontational for kids that that struggle with that reading that social play 
the, um, can be a really structured way of approaching that. And so the issues that I have found in the past with kids that, that fall into these, these categories are things like um, dealing with winning and losing um, and often the associations that those kids have with losing um, being the equivalent of failure and failure being the equivalent of, um, you know, I'm, I failed, I, I didn't win, therefore I failed, therefore I'm stupid. Um, and, and the emotions around winning and losing can be difficult for them to articulate and to deal with. Um, but as I said, I find that games are really provide, they provide enough structure to allow an interaction um, that, that just seems to, or, or encourage an interaction that they perhaps wouldn't get otherwise. And it's, I found that to be really, really valuable. As for teaching games to to these kids, um, you know, obviously every every kid is different, and the the level of um, autism in in different kids is obviously um, different, um, and and you need to approach them um, as such. Obviously, being aware of of their particular needs and their particular requirements, and what works with them and what doesn't. But what I've found working with the kids that I've taught has been to be very clear about these are the rules. This is, um, on your turn you may do this, this, this or this. The objective is, is the, of the game is to do this. On somebody else's turn it's perfectly okay for them to do this even if it messes you know, with your plans because on their turn it's it's their choices to what they do and it's it, you know it, it's it's structured by the rules of the game not by what you would like to happen and so you know i i i found them to, you know in, and i guess just being really methodical in your um and very deliberate very concise in your explanation of the game rules but then right. also throwing in the um, caveats of now that might mean that sometimes somebody might buy a road that you wanted and when that happens you have to think of a different way to do what you want to do and sometimes there may not be a different way to do what you want to do and so you need then to, to think of a new strategy based around maybe a different card and forget about that one. And so as long as I think you articulate these things and, and you know, sit through the first game with them or play the first game with them and, and talk them through some of those things that they might have issue with, then, you know, I think they can be a really powerful way for those kids to socially engage with their peers because they provide a structure that takes away some of the chaotic elements that they otherwise find difficult to deal with. Right. And we had a, a young gentleman come into our library and, and he has all of these issues. And I, I don't know whether he was actually diagnosed or not with autism, mm -hmm. uh, but we went in and or with Asperger's, actually, I'm pretty sure he's not full on autistic, but uh, we started with cooperative games so that we are all sort of working together and playing towards the same goal. So that way, if we lost that uh, it wasn't a, hey, I'm stupid. It's more of a, look, this group, we failed, and let's try again. Let's play it again and so that we can see that, hey, we can get past these issues of you know, self-deprecating, you know, self-hatred you know, mm -hmm. for, oh, I'm so awful for having lost, that you know, it, it just helps sort of push through some of that because it's a team, it's a group thing and, instead of one person. And then yeah. also when we were doing a game design, our game design group, uh, the, the game that he worked on was a game of faces and emotions where you would try and you sort of 
determine what the emotion you're looking for, and then you'd look at the faces that were up and try and say, well, this face is the one that most represents this emotion or that most represents these feelings. And, you know, so we utilized his, what he felt was his limitations or what his, you know, grandmother who was there with him felt was his limitations and sort of turned it into a neat way for him to engage with what we were doing. Yeah. And I think it can be a really powerful, um, you know, when, when, you know, when used, uh, you know, you do, you're not going to use it all the time and all that sort of stuff, you know. But when I think it, that a game can be a really powerful way to explore social interaction because it provides a structure. And, you know, then you get into, like you said, Don, with that faces game, you're reading emotions, you know, the game itself and the, the requirements of the game, and maybe it's something like that where you're looking at faces and trying to decide which emotion, um, which face best matches an emotion or whatever it might be, um, is another way of using a game to really structure and um, focus on a, a particular area that that, that child needs. Um, or you know has a has a weakness in, and so you know I just I, I really think that that used well these these games can be very powerful um, learning tools in those areas. Now, you don't want to use them all the time, and you don't want to use them to the point where they no longer become a a fun game experience and. You know, it'd be going like another spell. You know, like a spelling test. Oh, we've got to do another. We've got to play another game. You know, right. that's that's overusing it. But I certainly think that that used appropriately, they can be very powerful tools. Well, and, and we sort of talked about this in our you know games to learn stuff episode. Mm. I think we've we've done done this a couple of times. Is that if you can make a topic engaging and immediately important to the children who are playing it or to anybody who's playing it, then they absorb it a lot better. Yeah. Because even when I've been explaining rules to adults who, you know, don't have any kind of learning d- disability, you'll explain rules to them and they'll say, okay, and you keep moving on. And sure, they understand that concept when you explain it to them, but you circle back around to half an hour later during the game and they forget that rule was even mentioned because it didn't have any immediate relevance to them. But, you know, on the other hand, with this gentleman who came into our library and we were playing with him, you know, all of a sudden, you know, facial emotions and, and stuff of other people, which didn't seem to really matter to him all that much. He couldn't understand the relevance on a regular basis that they became important to him during the course of the game. And so there was something that he was more able to focus on and pay attention to. And I don't claim to be a developmental psychologist or anything like that, Mm. but it just seems to me that, by allowing them, allowing people extra opportunity to sort of grasp onto things, you're helping enforce that in a way that is meaningful to them. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, I think that all of those experiences, you know, combined with the normal run-of-the-mill um, programs that the, the, these kids participate in, can be really powerful ways to structure, you know, some of the, some of that learning. I think. It, um, you know, really good stuff. Certainly has been in my experience, you know, with the kids that I've had um, that have fallen into the or the autism spectrum, um, particularly just, just, you know, following this conversation, it's been a really, games have been a really powerful tool in exploring social interaction because in some cases I've been able to 
talk directly to those kids about winning and losing and, and how they feel and to get them to articulate their feelings, um, to get them to objectify what is happening um, and then to be able to um, uh, objectively sort of look at look at their feelings in comparison to the significance of what's actually taken place. So, you know, you're feeling, you know, particularly bad or negative about yourself at the moment, but, you know, what's the bigger picture? And, you know, it's not as simplistic as that, but I'm just, just for the sake of describing it for this podcast... It's been a, you know, it's it's provided a structure where I've been able to have those conversations with the, with with some of the kids. It's provided opportunities for social interaction with peers that they may not otherwise have had. It's been therefore also responsible for helping build friendships um, and and uh, understanding of, of peers and so forth. I, they've just been really powerful tools um, that I've seen, you know, in, in use in, in those particular situations. Well, all right. What are some other ways that you would be able to use games as sort of a hook? Or so, what are some other benefits of gaming that you might be able to find for somebody with autism or Asperger's? Yeah, and look, as you said before, you know, I'm not a developmental psychologist, and and certainly I've done some training in terms of educating kids with autism, um, and certainly I've had the experience of teaching um, over the years uh, plenty of kids um, that that have certainly been diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum, but I think some of the most powerful learning experiences come about um, through some of the things that we've discussed already, so the social interaction structured by the gameplay, um, and and some of the stuff that, that is really powerful are things like, as you said before, games that involve the identification of um, human emotions, for example, in Faces, being able to read, you know, happy and sad and and or picking the face that best describes those emotions. I think there's a, there's a party game called Faces, isn't there? Uh, there is. Uh, Tom Vassell of the Dice Tower talks about it all the time, and apparently he's made his own custom deck or something. <laughs> so, so, And that's something that, that you could do very easily, is go around with a camera and take some photos of different kids pulling faces, uh, you know, different emotions, and then... And then playing that game where, um, you know, you have the, the emotional descriptor, you know, sad, you know, which face best looks most sad or, um, you know, happy, which face looks most happy and so on. So that sort of stuff is is really good because it structures actual learning that is um, point of need for those children. You know, these are things that, that often kids on the autistic spectrum struggle with. And so being able to structure that where you're actually focusing on, you know, and you can have that discussion at different points. You know, what tells you that that face is the most sad? What about this face? You know, why is why is that face looking sad and that face not looking sad? So that brings up an excellent point for any kind of gaming activity to have its most impact after you have played the game or even during the game, you can stop and do this. Uh, have your debriefing where you're asking questions and you're helping contextualize and helping, helping these little elements sort of sink in hmm. because if you just, Oh, we're playing a game and then you walk away from it. And, and I don't know if we covered this in our early gaming episodes, but and it might be worth doing if, even if we already have is once you've played your games or during the course of the games, sort of reinforce the point of what you're doing yeah. and you can do it without sounding like you're preachy. I'm, 
I have a tough time with that, but I've seen it done <laughs> by, by other folks who are more skilled than myself with the, okay, guys, what, what was exciting about this? Or, mm. you know, oh, I know that you're emotional at this point and it's okay, but think about why this other player did that. And now I've had people get emotional when I've been playing games. I've got a, you know, a son who's now 14 and whenever he would get really frustrated by what I did or what he thought I was going to do, it'd be like, okay, why don't we change sides? And then as we would do that several times over the course of the game, he would sort of get much better at figuring out, whoa, when I'm doing what I'm doing, I sort of have to take the other person's perspective into, uh, into my considerations. I can't just think about what I want to do and have that always be right because you really are striving against outside forces. That's a really, you know, and coming back to the topic of games with with um, games and autism, that's a really powerful um, thing to be able for the for the, those kids to be able to do is to be able to um, look at the the game and and the needs of the game uh, or demanded by the game from the point of view of another player. That, that's a really powerful thing. And I'd go back to what you said earlier. The power in games doesn't come from just playing the game. You know, you play the game. Well done, everybody. Put it away. Bang. That that's not that's not where the learning takes place per se. The learning is really in a, in then it provides the opportunity for the teacher or the librarian or the whoever to be able to step in and contextualise that experience in some way that that makes up. Uh, uses the game to help make some sort of point or or to progress some sort of learning for that particular child. Um, you know, I've had... I've, I guess something else that's worth mentioning is, is the things that can go wrong in games. And one of the things is a direct result of something that we've already discussed. Games provide a structure... They have rules and they provide a structure that then the social interaction takes place around. However, there can be issues where you have a child who has a particular understanding of the rules and you have the other child they're playing with who has a different understanding of the rules. Or in a situation where there are multipliers, you've got one child who's got their understanding and then you've got another player who's got their understanding. And then which understanding is the one that, that comes out? It's the understanding of the child that is able to leverage the most support from the other players. And often for kids with autism, it isn't them. They are not the ones that are able to socially manipulate and cajole and convince the other players that they're the ones that are right. And so I, I've certainly seen plenty of situations where left on their own, kids who um, who are playing, you know, autistic kids who are playing a group with, with other kids sit there and they say, no, this is the rule, and the, the other child disagrees, and then the disagreement gets out of hand because the, the child with autism is obstinate, they are... And not not negatively so, they are absolutely sure that they are right, whether they are or not. They're absolutely sure that they're right and they're unwilling to bend. And you've got the other child who is able then to draw in the support of the other players and so it suddenly becomes two or three or four people versus one. And that's never going to be a, it's never going to be a positive outcome there. So, it's like an episode of Big Bang Theory. <laughs> so it's really, I think it's really important when 
structuring playtime, um, game time with kids with autism to be there and to be the troubleshooter and to make absolutely clear if there is a disagreement about the rules, this is how it is dealt with. Number one, you get the person who knows the rules. Maybe it's the teacher, maybe there's an aide in the room, maybe there's another another authority figure or person who can be the referee and just tell the group this is how it is. Um, if that doesn't work, then you do something else like a rock, paper, scissors, or you confer the rule book if they're able to read the rules and, and understand them. You make me very sad, Giles. You make me very sad. <laughs> confer with the rule book was number three on your list? Well, at the age group I'm dealing with, it's probably more like number five or six because the rule book certainly is there, but the, the kid's ability to grab the rule book out of the box and to be able to then work out the specific, you know, the find the rule, first of all, in the rule book, read the rule and understand what it means is limited. So for for the kids that I teach, that is really low down on the list. For kids that are older, more mature, certainly I'd put that up as number one. I would say that at any point when you're instructing a game, especially if somebody has a question about a rule, that you should pick up the rules book and find and show them the rules that they get used to looking it up in the rules book and and maybe even have the ability to find it themselves in the future. It's like, that's not the rule. The other guy grabs the rules, opens it up and says, just right here, this is where it is. I've seen it at this location. And, and that teaches another skill of how to find information, how to you know communicate it to other people, but more importantly, just how to make sure that you have the right information. And so you're killing me here, Giles. No, I haven't really, to be honest. Well, as I said, my, my kids are, are really too young to be grabbing out a rule book and looking at it. And I hadn't really considered picking up the rule book, you know, because, well, not because there's no real good reason for it. I've not really considered just picking up the rule book and, and opening it and saying, actually, look, here is written the rule and this is what the rule says. Um so that's a that's something that's I actually really like that. I'm going to use that from now on. Thanks for that, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you can cut out my whole diatribe if you want. That's fine. No, no, I thought that was that was really good because I can immediately see that that makes it very plain. Here it is in black and white. This is this is the rule. And I think you know for for, for kids coming back to the you know to the topic that, that for kids with autism, um, kids with with um, various forms of autism that it is very important to be clear about what these are the rules, to be able to point to the rule book and say this is where it is, is even um, more important because you're doing exactly what you said. You're referencing back to the to the, the source material. There is no questioning it. This is what the, the situation is and this is how it is resolved. And that's a very important thing. With kids, it's a big deal because it makes it seem less like I'm making a decision to favor one child or another. Yeah, and you really want to avoid that when you are doing games in a, well, in any setting. But if you can refer to it and say, "Oh, you know, I agree that what you said sounds reasonable, but here's the rule of the game, and we need to follow the way that it sets." Yeah, and then that can spur discussions. And we've had it where the kids would all say, "Oh, that's a horrible rule. We don't want to do that." It's like, well, that's fine as long as whatever rule you guys make up, you all do, all agree to file follow it. And if at any point there's any disagreement, you have to go back to what's in the rules book. I really, I really like that. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't use that with with 
with um, games with kids, um, you know, on the autistic spectrum because it adds in that layer of uncertainty that that can often be, um, a dis, you know, destabilise the experience for them. But certainly I can see, you know, that that would be, a, that's a really, really good thing with, um, with other kids. That sounds, yeah, really, really good idea. Well, there you have it. I think we've talked this one through. Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's a lot to talk about in terms of um, using games for for different learning needs. And autism is certainly one of those things, you know, that, um, you know, you'll see in any classroom, certainly, you know, over, over my years in the classroom, I've had plenty of kids, you know, every year I've, I've had a class, I've had plenty of kids in each class that, that have that have been diagnosed as fitting somewhere on the autistic spectrum. Um, and, you know... I'll say it again, and I know that I'm I'm just restarting and restarting, but I really do think games are a really powerful way to structure some important learning for 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 those kids around social interaction and around interpersonal skills, you know, and for all kids as well. You know, there's there's lessons we can all have in terms of sportsmanship or you know being a good sport playing fairly, playing with honour, playing with pride, all of those things are, are vital, not just skills for kids with autism, but vital skills for um, people in life in general. Well, and just the ability for people to play with kids with autism, to help them become comfortable or used to that kind of environment or that kind of situation is, is also a big benefit. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a it's a it's a benefit from both points of view, um, in the sense that the 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 you know I've seen certainly this year with the with the lad that I've got this year, who loves train games. Um, he's he's able to make a lot of friends through his game playing and his interaction with the game program that he would not have otherwise made. And I can certainly say that there are kids who have. Been, become friends with him who would never have done so otherwise and so right there to me it has been a really powerful thing I think from for the, for the for for his new friends it's been a powerful experience for them and for him it's been a really powerful and interesting experience as well so you know it's been great to see growth from from both points of view well all right um for us not planning to talk about this topic Giles I think we've done a heck of a job at giving an introduction to it at least. Yeah, and sorry, look, if anybody out there has got um, experience with autism or experience um, using games or other tools in the classroom or the library or wherever to to deal with um, and to um, support and help kids, um, you know, with those particular learning needs, you know, I would really love to hear about it. I think it's a, that it's a really important discussion to have and it's a really valuable thing to hear more about. So um, certainly I'd love to read anything. If, if you've got it posted in the Guild, you'll find that if you head to our website, gameschoolslibraries.com, there's a link there to our Guild on Board Game Geek and post a thread there. We'd love to hear about it. Um, or email us, that's gsl at gameschoolslibraries.com. Um, you know, the, it, it's. I really think you know as much. You know, we. Sh- it's difficult, as you said at the start of the episode, Don, to talk about these things sometimes without without sounding at times condescending or without sounding like you're um, putting someone in a box or um, negatively attributing uh, particular things to groups of people. It's difficult, but. 
they are nonetheless really important things to discuss, as, as difficult as sometimes they may be. And, you know, we I'm, I'm not certainly saying I've got all the answers. You know, you might listen to what we've said in this episode and come away thinking that I'm a fool, and that's great. Let me know because, you know, I'd love to, love to learn more, certainly. All right. Well, Giles, what was supposed to be a two-minute discussion before we leapt into our main topic has turned into a 40-minute episode. So <laughs> thank you very much for having me on to, to talk about such interesting and unexpected things. Absolutely, Don, and we'll get to our main topic next time we record. Um, but yeah, no, thanks very much. Uh, I certainly didn't expect the conversation to veer in that direction, but um, hopefully in any case we made some sense um, to our listener out there, uh, and hopefully it was enjoyable. So... Uh, until next time, I'm Giles Pritchard. And I'm Donald Dennis. And you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. Games in Schools and Libraries is kindly hosted by the Games for Educators website. You can find them at www.g4ed.com. You can subscribe to their newsletter, check out games through their game finder, and of course, it's the home of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Drop by and post comments on the episodes. We love feedback. Games in Schools and Libraries is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. To view a copy of this license, visit our webpage at the Games for Educators website.